Good afternoon, it's Tuesday, 12.15 p.m. time for Lunch and Learn. Here's a picture of Rav Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, taken in 1939. This is the father of the Rebbe, the Lubavitcher Rebbe. Here's another picture, same man, five years later, 1944, Rav Levi Yitzchak, shortly before his passing. We'll talk about him a little later. Good afternoon. Yesterday marked the yard site, the passing of Rebbe Levi Yitzchak. And I want to invite everybody to a Fabrengen that we'll be having tonight at 9 o'clock. I'll give you the rest of the details a little later. Uh, for now, we are back here for lunch and learn. Lunch and learn is our weekly Torah study session that we have every Tuesday at 12.15 p.m. For about an hour where we study every week another idea another topic from a Torah perspective from a Jewish um, point of view <clears throat> okay today's gonna be a bit different than usual I'm gonna get a little technical and analyze good afternoon Jody and hope Roy is with you Let's start with a bracha. Baruch atah adinoi aleheinu malach ha'elam she'akol niyab izvarei. Picture we saw of Rabbi Levi Yitzchak. He was arrested, and look what kind of torture he went through. We can't recognize him after five years. And what was he arrested for? For teaching Torah. We're able to study Torah. No one's arresting us, thank God. It's a free country. We have the ability to be in the comfort of our home and just tune in to study Torah together as we do every week. And it's a beautiful thing that we can study God's wisdom and connect ourselves to the depth of Torah. And Torah has many parts to it. You know, there's, there's um, the ritual parts of the Torah law, which deals with, let's say, the laws of Shabbos and kosher, which is more between man and God. And then we have, Torah has a very, very extensive and comprehensive law for civil law, and criminal law. Lots of the tractates of Mishnah and Talmud deal with between man and his friend. And in times of old, in times when the government of Israel was following you know, the Jewish government uh, for hundreds of years, as well as later on in Babylon, in Babylonia, where the Jewish community flourished for hundreds of years, more than a thousand years, this was the law. They were given their own, um, you know, the, the ability to, to rule according to the law of the Torah. And the judge, the Beth, the Bethdin, the Bastin, would rule and administer um, punishments or penalties and so on according to the law of the Torah. So the law of the Torah was used until today it is used for both sides agree that we'll go to a based in um, so we're gonna look at some of the civil laws that Torah deals with and have a taste of Talmudic um, debate hi Igor and we're gonna get started I think that's uh, Stan if that's you hi if you received my email, you should have the source sheet in the email so you can print it out so we can get ready to follow along. Otherwise, you can download it or print it out from the link on this post. And let's get started. <clears throat> Another session, this is Lunch and Learn number 102, 102, that we're coming together to study um, every week. 
This is going to be exciting and try to make it always a little different every time another style. So we're going to get started. I'm going to start today, we'll divide uh, the lesson into three parts. Usually we do four. Today's lesson is divided into three se sections. We'll begin with the first section, with, which uh, brings up a case. <clears throat> Talk about a, a real case that happened uh, about 130 years ago. And we'll try to analyze the case. How does it work with a basin? A case will happen. And the rabbis will have to try to draw from original sources, from Torah, from Talmud, some sort of precedent that is mentioned in the Talmud, and try to apply that, see if it applies to that specific case. So we're going to do the same. We're going to look at a real case, a real case, a real scenario that happened in the 1890s, 1894, a real case that happened, how it was brought to the contemporary rabbis, of the, you know, the rabbis of the time, and how they dealt with it. We'll see a bit of a debate, and we'll come out with a clear ruling how to apply uh, teaching of the Talmud, you know, 1700, 1800 years ago, how to apply that to a modern case. That will be, we'll look at the case in the first section of the class, we'll move on to the decision in the second section, and move on to the lesson, as we always do, the lesson, what is this idea, what does it present, represent, what does it teach us, um, even though we're not part of a, a rabbinical court, and hopefully we won't have to deal with the case, kind of, uh, this kind of case, but what is, uh, what is the relevance, what's the lesson to, to anybody? Hi Eddie, hi Stan. Let's get going and take a look at source number one. Actually, before we look inside, let me just give you the case, uh, the backdrop, the introduction to the case, and we'll read the, the case inside. So a lot of these cases are actually in what's called Shailos Uchuvot, Shalot Uchuvot, which means question and answers. Many, or many, kind, many sections to the library, or Rickman's library here. Um, one section is called books that rabbis would write from the questions they received, the specific question, and how they responded to the question, how they ruled based on halacha, based on you know, uh, the teachings of the Talmud. The Talmud that halacha doesn't, quote of Jewish law, doesn't talk about every single case. It gives us the general cases and maybe different examples that came up at that time, and we can apply that to other cases. And not always is so clear, and that's the job of an expert rabbi, and not just a regular rabbi, but a, a rabbi, a judge, who, who, who presides over a case in, in, a, in a rabbinical court, in a Beth Din. So many of these books, the Shalot to Tshuva, they don't just have the answer, they're going to have the questions. So it's fascinating to see throughout the generations what kind of questions uh, came up, this, the, the cases that were posed to the rabbis. So this question happened, this case happened in 1894 in Lithuania, in Vilna, or Vilnas. Vilna, Lithuania. So in that year, at 1894, the Tsar, Alexander the Tsar, this is in uh, Lithuania, I guess was part of the, the Russian Empire. And, you know, for generations, Jewish people, many thousands of Jewish families would be supported. They would make a living by having a tavern and being um, serving drinks. That was a way that Jewish people made money. Many Jewish families along the way, on the roads, uh, and people would stop in for, for, uh, for, uh, for a drink, for some spirits. And until there was a heavy tax on selling alcohol, but somehow they managed. Until 1894 when the Tsar began to establish um, a monopoly, a government monopoly over selling liquor. And all the taverns were shut down and it became illegal to sell um, alcohol 
and to sell spirits, it had to be the um, you know state run, the state managed. The taverns were all run by by the state, by the government, and having liquor, selling liquor that was illegal, and there can be great penalties and punishments for violating this law. But what should Jewish families do? You know, all of a sudden their whole business uh, they became destitute. They became uh, no source of, of income. So many of them. Won't go into it if it was uh, right or wrong. Many of them continue to sell alcohol, to sell drinks, to continue uh, going underground, you know, undercover. I guess, meanwhile, until they figure something out. So here's the case. So there's a Jewish vendor, a Jewish tavern, secret tavern owner, selling drinks, having barrels stocked in his home or in his basement. And let's take a look at source number one. This is the question that was posed to, to the rabbis in Vilna in the 1890s, 130 years ago. Source number one in our source sheet. Hi, Stan. I think I said hi, but hi again. Hi, Barbara. Everyone can, uh, can share this, so others can join in as well. Hi, Barbara. Nice to see you. We're just getting started. Here we go. 60 minutes of Torah study. Number one, a vendor living in Lithuania was visited by a fellow Jew who, to the vendor's utter dismay, destroyed his barrel of alcohol. The liquor seller was livid, but only at first. Unbeknownst to them, a government official had been doing rounds at that time, checking compliance with the liquor laws. He entered the store shortly after the barrel was broken. Thus, the vendor was saved from being found in violation of the law and escaped paying harsh penalties. That's the case. So he, he owns a barrel of alcohol. This guy comes in, a fellow Jew, and for whatever reason, he vandalizes, he breaks the barrel, and of course, his, the owner's reaction is, is uh, he's very upset. And he wants the guy to pay for the barrel. Hey, it's a barrel of alcohol. I can make, I can make money off that. But what happens a few moments later is when the guard, the, the police come in, the government uh, officials come in, they don't find a barrel of alcohol. That barrel of alcohol was destroyed. And thus, the vandal, the one that came in to destroy the barrel, was actually saving him because otherwise he would have had to pay much more. The fine would have been so much, would have exceeded the, the worth of the, the income from that barrel. So by breaking his barrel, he actually helped him. He actually prevented him from having to pay such heavy fines and who knows what else he would get for the violation. So the question is, a very specific question we're going to deal with, is the vandal, the one that came to vandalize, is he exempt from paying for the barrel of alcohol? Or can the owner, the vendor, demand payment for the lost, for the broken barrel of alcohol. Do we say that the vandal... Here, let, let's break this up like this. You know, there, there are three things, that, there are three parts here, three dimensions to, to, the, to, the, to what happened here. What was the intent? What was the intention? This is the first thing we'll discuss. The intention of the vandal was to vandalize. He didn't know what's happening outside. That was the case. He didn't know. He was just coming to hurt, to, to break, to, to make problems, to destroy. He had a negative intent. His intent was to vandalize. What did he do? What was the act? The act was he broke the barrel. But what was the outcome? The outcome was positive. 
he ended up by breaking the barrel, even though his intent was negative, but the outcome was positive. He helped this man, he helped his fellow Jew. So the question is, do we say, well, he had a negative, negative intent and his act was an act of destroying, so let's go by that. And he should be, he should need to pay. He should be um, obligated to pay for the damage. Or do we say, well, look at the outcome. Even though his intent was negative, but the outcome was positive, and he should be exempt for the act. And for the intent, because we go by the outcome. That's the question here. Do we go by intent, or do we go by results? by the outcome. That's what we're going to discuss. We're going to take this case. This case was presented to the rabbis in Vilna and we're going to try to find a precedent in Jewish law, in Talmud, and see how the rabbis debated how this can be applied. <clears throat> this is what we do in yeshiva. We look at a case, analyze it, and this is what the Talmud is about. So here's a little taste of, of, um, of Talmud and what rabbis in a Bethdin will go through. So, again, just to clarify, you know, we're not saying this guy's a good guy. Obviously, he has negative intent, and perhaps, uh, as a deterrent, we might give him a fine, because if we don't find him, maybe this time there was a positive outcome, well, maybe he'll go to somebody else and break their barrel, or do some other kind of damage, and he won't be helping them. But that is, that is a deterrent for the future. The question here is, does he deserve retribution? Does he deserve, does he have to compensate the owner, the vendor, for this specific case, not because of the future, right now, right now, does he deserve, does he, is he obligated to compensate the owner for this act of breaking this specific barrel, or because there was a positive outcome, he is exempt. So let's look, uh, let's move from civil law, if you're with me, if you're following along, if you just give me a thumbs up and say yes, because once again, it's hard to talk to a phone. We have to, uh, we're going to really exercise our brain over here. And try to think. And analyze. So, we're going to move a little bit, we're going to move away from civil law to ritual law. There are two types, two categories in Jewish law. We have, as we mentioned, between man and his friend, civil law. And then there's, gonna, there's ritual law, laws of Shabbos, for example. What's forbidden, what's not forbidden. Thank you, Jody. So many of the principles that are present in ritual law can be transferred, can be learned to use also in civil law and the other way as well. So we're going to move a little bit to, we're going to move for a moment to, thank you, Barbara, we're going to move to ritual law and we'll see how we can apply the principles to the case over here to, to civil law. Let's take a look at source number two. One of the things that it is forbidden to do on Shabbos, uh, included in the prohibition of performing work, laboring on Shabbos. We rest on Shabbos. We do not perform work. What kind of work? What is the definition of work? We had a separate lesson about that, but there's 39 general categories of creative labors, and one of them is one of them is the following source number two: trapping is one of the primary categories of labor forbidden on Shabbos by scriptural law. One is liable for trapping if the trapped animal need not be trapped again. Okay, so if you trap an animal in a way that it's trapped, it's, you have it, it's in your hands basically, meaning you don't have to go ahead and trap it again. 
So if you if you basically catch fish, let's say simply if you go, you put a net into the water or you whatever it is, you, you're you're going fishing with your rod. You know, back in the day it was just with, with uh, mainly with nets. They would put it into the, the fishermen would put it into the water and you catch a fish. So you're trapping the fish, you're taking it, you are minimizing your, you know, the, the freedom of the fish. That's called trapping. And once you get it into your net, that's it. You don't have to trap it again. It's there. It's right in front of you. Whereas if you would trap, let's say, an animal in a uh, big, huge field, but you still have to, tr- you still have to get, you know, it's not so easy to get to that, and we have to sort of trap it again. That wouldn't be called trapping. But trapping it in a very secluded area, a small area where it's basically trapped and trapping is over, you caught it, that would be trapping on Shabbos, and that would, be, that would be forbidden, one of the categories of work. So going fishing on Shabbos is a problem. Not something that we do. Because we are limiting the freedom of the fish. It's one of the issues, okay? So to take a net, to go fishing, and to take the net and put it into the water and come up with fish, putting it into your boat, that is that would be forbidden on Shabbos. Now, there would be, if that is done, uh, that's a transgression of Shabbos, and, and there would be certain um, consequences to that. Let's talk in a, a simple case. In times of the temple, one would bring a sacrifice. One would bring a korban, an offering, to atone for this sin. can be in other cases, other things, but there's some sort of um, consequence, some sort of compensation for, for sort of uh, to, for transgressing this on Shabbos. So now what happens, source number three tells us the code of Jewish law, anyone who acts diligently to desecrate the Shabbos in a life-threatening situation is praiseworthy, even if he concomitantly performs another activity. So if someone is out to save a life, everything gets overridden, even if along the way, at, you know, simultaneously, something else is done. What's an example? Another activity that is, that is certainly forbidden. For example, if he casts out a net to rescue a child who had fallen into a river and he also catches fish with it. So just to go plain fishing, that's forbidden. But what if a child is fell into the water and what does this guy do? He takes the net and he puts it into the water to try to find the child, to try to bring up the child with the net. The net can be lowered low into the water and try to scoop up the child. And along with that comes some fish. So then we would say that's totally okay, even though fish, catching fish is a problem. And you don't need to catch fish in order to save the child. But it was done automatically. It was done together. You didn't go fishing. You went fishing for the child. You went trying to catch to save the child's life. Even if it didn't work, but that was your intent. So their intent was to save the child. The act was an act which was fish, putting down a net which is permitted. It is overridden in order to save the child. And even though the outcome was also the fish, but because you were doing it to save the child, and even for sure if the child actually came up, it doesn't matter what happened to the fish, because the act was an act being done to save the child. But here's where the Talmud gets complicated. Here, that if his intent is to catch the child, is to rescue the child. But what if, source number four, a child had fallen into the sea on Shabbos? Hi, Lenny. We'll get to your question later, Stan. 
a child had fallen into the sea on Shabbos. Into, but a particular fisherman was unaware of this. He was doing fishing. He, was, he wasn't aware that the child fell in. And his intent was to go fishing. And unfortunately, he was transgressing the laws of Shabbos. He spreads his net to catch fish. But in addition to catching fish, he also saves a child. So what do we do? Does he, does he have to bring his sacrifice? Is there a consequence here? His intent was to fish, which is forbidden. A negative intent to transgress the law of Shabbos. Whether he knew, he didn't know. But that's what it, that was his intent. What did he do? He did something forbidden. He put a net in the, in the, in the water to catch fish. But the outcome was that in addition to catching fish, he also caught a child. He rescued a child. And to rescue a child, anything can be done. Even if fish come up along with that, with the child. Or even... So in this case, is this man who his intent was to desecrate the Shabbos? Or not because he wanted to desecrate the Shabbos, but his intent was to do something uh, without any reason why there shouldn't be a desecration of Shabbos. He wasn't expecting to find a child. He was doing an act which was a desecration of the Shabbos with the intent to do something which is desecrating the Shabbos without knowing that it's permitted. But what came up was a child. So the outcome was positive. He saved a life. So does he have to bring a sacrifice or does he not have to bring the sacrifice? Do we go by his intent and his action, which were negative in this case? Or by the outcome. And the outcome was that the fact is he saves a child's life and nobody gets punished for saving a child's life even if you desecrate the Shabbos. So what do we do? So the Talmud brings two opinions. We have a debate. Rabbah says he is not liable. Two rabbis, one his name was Rabbah. Rabbah lived in, they both lived in Babylonia in the early you know, second or the third centuries. Rabbah lived in a place called Pumpadisa. It was a great yeshiva there. Rabbah is of the opinion that he is not liable. And Rava, who lived in a place called Mechuza in Babylonia, says he is liable. Okay, so we have a debate. Doesn't help us much, but we have a debate. Rava says he is not liable. Rava says he is liable. An argument, very common in the Talmud. Different opinions. Jewish people, different opinions. If you rabbis, different opinions what to do. So what do we do? Is he, he is liable or he's not liable? This man is called into the bank and the bank manager tells him, your finances are a mess. Your checking account is overdrawn. Your, lo your loan is overdue. What's happening? The man says, I know, I know. It's all my wife's fault. She's out of control. So the bank manager tells him, uh, why do you allow your wife to spend more than what you have? So the man says, you know, frankly, it's because I'd rather argue with you than with her. Arguments, arguments, okay. So they're arguing, Rava and Rava. He is liable or he's not liable. That's the case in the Talmud, which is very similar to our case because... It's a similar case, not in ritual law, but in civil law. There is a negative intent over here. His intent was to vandalize, and he acted upon that intent. He went and broke the barrel, but there was a positive outcome. Not a child was saved, but he was saved from a penalty for having to pay for the violation, violations of, of, of uh, selling liquor when it was illegal. Do we go by the outcome? And he helped him. Why should he have to pay for the act? He actually saved him from a greater... Um, expense. 
Or do we say, you came in to vandalize. None of your business what happened after. What do we do? Do we follow Rabba or Rava? So let's move on to source number five, which will describe to us the two sides. Source number five, Rava says that the prohibition of fishing on Shabbos is suspended only if you intend to save a life. Because to him, intentions are paramount. Rava looks at the intentions. What was the guy's intention? His intention was not to save a child. His intention was to do an act which is forbidden on Shabbos. To go fishing. Excuse me. And if so, because that's our, that is his intentions, doesn't matter what happened. He's liable. He has to bring the sacrifice for, for, for this sin on Shabbos. But Rabbah says that the prohibition of fishing on Shabbos is suspended if you intend to save a life. Or, hi Gary, or if you do an actual life, an actual fact, excuse me, save a life. To Rabbah, outcome is paramount. Not just if you're intending to, but even if you do not intend, but that is what you did. The fact is, you saved a life. Look at the outcome. He says, outcome is paramount. That is what's powerful. That is what's most important. That is what takes precedent. uh, Takes uh, first place. So we understand now the two opinions, Rabbah and Rava. Two different opinions. Do we go by the intentions or do we go by the outcome? So what do we do? So thank God we have something called Halacha. In their times, whoever was in his city followed Rabbah. Whoever was in the city of Rabbah may have followed Rabbah. At one point, maybe they took a vote and followed the majority. And that is the accepted Halacha across the board that is established in the Code of Jewish Law in Shulchan Aruch, preceded by Maimonides, who was the first Code of Jewish Law. What does Maimonides hold? Who does, whose opinion? We can't, we can't have everyone following different opinions. What is the accepted opinion in this Accepted uh, opinion in this case. Source number six. If a fisherman f- lowers his net to catch fish, tells us Maimonides, and he happens to also save a child, he happens to, it wasn't his intention, he is not liable, even if he did not know that the child had fallen into the water. So, Maimonides and Halacha in Kodah Jerusalem follows him. We follow the opinion of Rabbah. That the outcome is paramount. And even though his intention was negative, in the case of Shabbos, his intention was to desecrate the Shabbos or to go fishing, to do an act which is, des- which is forbidden on Shabbos, whether he knew it or not, but he wasn't planning to do something with the intention of saving the child's life, something which would then would be permitted, then he is not liable. He does not have to bring the sacrifice. So what would we say in our case? How can we apply this law back to our case? Similarly, the vandal, he actually, you know, he had, despite his negative intentions and the act of breaking the barrel, but because it led to a positive outcome, so we go by the outcome. The fact is, he prevented him, he, he saved him from having to pay these harsh penalties. So, he is exempt from paying for the barrel. And that is how one of the Vilna rabbis uh, who the question was originally posed to, responded. His name was Chaim Segalowitz, if I'm pronouncing it right. He passed away in the 18, uh, or 1920s. But he, was a, he was a rabbi then, actually I think in a city near Vilna. And that's how he responded. Source number seven, it would seem to me, it's a quote uh, translating from his Hebrew writings, 
from his Shalot Utshuvot, his question and answer book called Mekor Chaim, his name was Chaim, it would seem to me that the vandal is not liable because by breaking the barrel of alcohol, he saved the vendor from a penalty and thus did him a great service. <laughs> he did him a great service. However, his opinion was rejected by the other rabbis at the time, the leading rabbi in Vilna, as well as other rabbis in future generations who rejected his opinion and explain how the case that we just brought from the Talmud and the loss of Shabbos is not exactly our case. Hopefully your head is starting to work and trying to figure out why. Why even Rabbah, even Rabbah which does, yes, we, the halacha is like Rabbah, that in the case of the fisherman, that his intentions were to go fishing and he caught a child, he will not be liable because intentions are, because outcome is paramount. But nonetheless, this case is different. Why is this case different? So this, uh, this was uh, advanced, this, this uh, approach by Reb Shlomo HaKohen. He was the leading judge, the leading Dayan in the rabbinic court of the Bethdin of Vilna, or Vilnas, I think it was called there. Us Jews, uh, we call it Vilna. And actually, the Talmud that we have today, the version of the Talmud, the page set up, the print of the Talmud is called the Vilna Shas, the Vilna Talmud, because he was the one that sifted through the Talmud and fixed all the mistakes, all the typos, and set up the page the way it is today um, in the, I think, the early 1900s or the late 1800s. So this is the rabbi, Rabbi Shlomo Cohen, in his book called Binyan Shalomo. Many of the books of these rabbis, they would name it based on the name of their book connected to their name. So what does he say? He says the case is not exactly the same. Let's take a look at source number eight. That case is different from our case of the liquor vandal because the act of fishing itself saves a life. In our case, where the intent was to cause damage and the deed caused damage, barrel was broken, he is liable to pay. The vandal is liable to pay for the barrel. The fact that the damage later turned out to be for the vendor's benefit cannot exonerate the vandal of his already established culpability. He has a responsibility to pay as soon as he breaks the barrel, the act, he had a negative intention, he smashed the barrel, Right away, what's the immediate result? The barrel, the alcohol is gone. And that responsibility, that culpability was established already. The fact that a few moments later, a government official walks in and it turns out that that act actually was a good service, was a great service to him, preventing him from violating, from being found in violation being found in violation of having and selling illegal spirits, illegal uh, the alcohol, that's a separate thing. That cannot take away the responsibility, the obligation to pay. In other words, let's take uh, it's more elaborated in number nine. It has to be simultaneous. The act. Let's take a look in source number nine. In order for any negative action to be deemed positive, okay, it's a negative action, in order for Rabbah to say, oh, even though the intent was negative and the act was negative, but because of there was a 
positive outcome. It's 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 uh he's not obli- he's not liable. So in order for any negative action to be deemed positive, there must be a positive outcome at the time it is performed. Simultaneously with the act, the act itself immediately has to bring on the positive outcome. The vandal's liability was firmly established. In this case, this it was firmly established before the liquor turn the page before the liquor inspector showed up. <laughs> it, was, it was a couple of moments there. He broke the barrel. He was livid and said, "You got to pay me for this barrel." Right. So his obligation, his um, to pay, was established. Later, the inspector showed up. And once established, the liability does not vanish upon the appearance of the inspector. The fact that it subsequently emerges that the owner would have had to pay a fine does not reverse the damage already inflicted. Otherwise, we say in Hebrew, you can never, you might never be able to, um, to obligate someone to pay because you never know what could happen as a result. You know, something good could happen as a result. We have to deal with the result, the immediate result. In this case, what was the immediate result? He, the act after the act. He broke the barrel. Right now, nothing good happened. You broke the barrel, the act was completed. He lifted his hands from the hammer, he smashed the barrel, finished. The alcohol is all over the place, but that's it. The act is completed. Right now, all there is, is a, is a, is a reason why he should, he should have to compensate. He has to pay for it. He has to pay for the alcohol. The fact that later... Something else happened. That's, a, that's another story. That doesn't that doesn't um, delete. That doesn't erase the previous result. Whereas in the case of the fish, the fisherman, when he lowered his net into the water, together with the fish, together with trapping the fish, which is the negative intent and the negative act. Before the conclusion of the act, before he lifted the net back into his, into his fishing boat, along came a child. And that child was saved, he was rescued. So his act of fishing, his act of trapping the fish, immediately, simultaneously, at the same time, the same act did a good act, brought a positive outcome. Yes, the fish also came. But together with the fish came the child. He didn't first fish and then get the child. We're talking about he took his net, he put it into the water, lifted the net, together with the fish came a child. So the act of fishing, actually together with transgressing Shabbos, also was doing a good act, saving a child's life, which cancels out any negative intent. Because the act itself... Before the act was completed, there was already a positive outcome. It doesn't come together. It comes together, excuse me. The, the act itself has to bring a positive outcome. But in the case of the vandal, of the liquor, the act didn't bring immediate, immediate relief. Right away, the guy was livid, right? He was upset. Later on, so how long is later on? What if it comes uh, three years later? You know, <laughs> it has to be together with the actual act that the positive outcome comes. To cancel out a negative uh, intent and a negative action, the action itself has to 
bring immediately has to be part of the action bring positive result. Let's give an, another real life case which will which will be simultaneous. A real case. This is a couple of years ago, 2015, 2016, uh, in Chicago. It was in the summer, very hot, the high 80s, Fahrenheit, and a couple of young men were walking by a pub, an Irish pub, I think, and they see a pickup truck, the windows are closed, and they see a laptop sitting there on the seat, front seat. They look around, they don't see anybody, they take a rock, they smash the window, they take the laptop, and they continue on. They steal the laptop. What happens is, uh, the owner of the Irish, uh, you know, the pub, has this on camera, and he comes out, I guess, and he sees that what was inside the, this pickup truck, there was a German Shepherd, there was a dog there. The owner of the, of the truck left this dog in the heat, and the, the, vet, the, vet, the vet will tell you that if it's 80 degrees, uh, 85 degrees outside, that in the car, after a short time, the, the, the heat is going to rise, and it's, it could get to like 125 degrees. And that can be, uh, that, that can uh, kill the dog being so hot, uh, you know, a heat, heat stroke. So by smashing the window, their intent was negative. <laughs> they were intended on stealing this laptop. What did they act? They acted upon their negative intent. They smashed a window. But there was a positive outcome, which I guess for this owner exceeded the, the, the worth of the laptop. His dog was saved. Right? So again, here you have the same question. Do you punish these, these boys for, for smashing the window? And they have to pay for the window? Or... Um, for sure the laptop, because the laptop has nothing to do with anything. For sure they got to pay for the laptop. But let's say the window. Do they have to pay for the window? Or do we say, wait a second. The owner only came back a long time later. He didn't realize or he, he thought that he left it in the shade. and realize it's so hot. Whatever it is. So, yes. Do you say their intent was negative? Like Rava, say their intentions are most important and they, they have to pay? Or do we say, wait, their act of breaking the window saved this dog's life and brought, and brought, uh, uh, saved the owner from, from losing his dog, which is much more precious to him than the window. Or he can say, uh, you know, so, so, so then we'll say, well, look at the outcome. The outcome is that it was a, it brought to a positive uh, outcome. The breaking of the window uh, helped this dog live, prevented it from dying. So if we would follow Rabbah, we would say we'd go by the, by, the, by the action, by the outcome. But in this case, it is not like the case of the liquor. Because here, the benefit is simultaneous together with the act. As soon as the window was broken, they broke it for the laptop. But as soon as the window was broken, air started to flow in. The breaking of the window enabled for immediate relief for the dog. Preventing it from getting hotter and hotter until the point of dying. Whereas in the case of the liquor, there was no immediate benefit. Yes, there was potential for benefit. If a, uh, um, a official would show up, then it would be beneficial. But maybe something else would happen. Maybe he would be able to serve everything before they showed up. You know? So the immediate result over there, there was no immediate benefit. It was dependent on the official show if he shows up or not 
right? But there was no immediate benefit from the act of breaking the barrel. It happened to be that later on, a couple of minutes, I don't know how long later the guy showed up. Oh, so it ended up being a positive outcome. But because it wasn't an immediate benefit, Shlomo Cohen says, this is not the case. The case of the dog, the German shepherd, is like the case of the fisherman. Because immediate together with the act of catching the fish came the child. And the one act saved the child's life. So in ritual law, the Torah will say over there, we follow Rabbi's opinion, the Allah is that he does not have to, uh, he's, not, he's not obligated to bring a sacrifice because the act of fishing, of trapping the fish, the same act also saved the child's life, which overrides any negative intentions and any desecration of Shabbos. Whereas in the case of the liquor, we'll follow the, uh, the majority opinion which follows Rabbi Shlomo Koyen, unlike Rabbi Segalevitz, Segalewitz, Lowitz, who did compare the cases, but we'll follow Rabbi Shlomo, who says, no, it's not the same, because over there, the act of breaking the barrel did not lead to immediate uh, benefits. The act later on caused benefit, but not immediate. And therefore, he would, he, was, he did, um, he did obligate the vandal, the Jew, to pay his fellow Jew. Let's take a look at source number 10, which sums it up. If a positive result is produced immediately, it cancels the negative action. If, but if there's a lull between the action and the positive result, the action is punishable. Now, it does not mean that the, van, that, um, the one who went fishing didn't do anything wrong. You know, he's faultless. Or the one, the boys that broke the window, even though we won't have, maybe we'll make them, according to Torah law, uh, we won't punish them, we won't um, obligate them to pay for the broken window. It doesn't mean that, there's faultless, that they're faultless. There's no fault here. Because there's an ethical violation. They violated, they didn't have the intent to, uh, you know, to save this guy's dog. And they did not have, he did not have the intent to, save, to rescue the child. He had the intent to go fishing on Shabbos. And we're obviously, it seems like we're, we're talking here about somebody who is aware that it's forbidden on Shabbos to fish. But, the way the law works is, in this case, we will follow, we won't obligate him to bring a sacrifice. But, let's take a look at Source 11, which shows us that he still does need atonement in other ways. Now, the, the best in the judicial system will not obligate him in, in, with compensation. Uh, but... Nonetheless, there is, between him and God, and even between him and his friends, he still needs to apologize and uh, seek atonement and forgiveness for his actions. And Source 11 gives us an example from a case which is more, <clears throat> even less severe. Let's say, for example, somebody, usually they keep kosher, they never eat uh, pig, pork. One day, the guy decides can resist his temptation and he goes, he sees some on the table and he eats it. And then he realizes, he finds out, he looks at the package, he says it wasn't real pork, it was imitation. Imitation pork can be kosher, right? not every, but uh, imitation is, can be if everything else, all other ingredients, everything is kosher. So was, this happened to be, it was kosher. So his intent was to not eat kosher, to do something wrong. They transgressed the laws of kosher. And the outcome was fine, you know. Everything was kosher, everything was fine. He didn't really end up doing anything wrong. 
Nothing that he digested kosher food. But his intention was, so over there it's even less severe because he didn't do anything wrong. He, he, not just he, had, he only had negative intention, but the action wasn't an act of, of, uh, of destroying, like the man who destroyed the barrel or putting a net into the water on Shabbos is, is a problem. Uh, but here, putting kosher food in your mouth is not a problem. It was kosher. But his intention, and even just for intending to do that, and acting upon that intention, even though it happened to be that in that case, it was purely kosher, perfectly kosher. Nonetheless, he was at a point that he was ready to do something wrong. It's like, imagine somebody, uh, you know, if somebody shoots somebody and kills someone, it's terrible. And for sure, he has, uh, you know, deserves retribution. What if somebody intends to shoot someone, but the, the trigger gets, gets, um, gets, what's the word? It gets stuck. It's jammed. He intended to shoot. And he actually tried to press the trigger. But it got jammed. Right? So maybe he didn't kill anybody. But it was attempted murder. Even though nothing really happened. Nothing happened. No bullet came. He wasn't hurt. But there's something wrong over here. There's a fault. And that's what we see in source number 11. The Talmud says, One who reaches out to take pork with the intention of eating it. I don't think they had imitation pork back then. Uh, crab, whatever the imitation is. But here it says, one who reaches take pork, he thought it was pork and he had the intention of eating it, but accidentally takes lamb instead, stands in need of atonement and forgiveness. Another interesting point in source number 12 is that although the law of Torah will not demand uh, for the person, the vandal in that case, to pay, but when the court sees, source 12, when the court sees that the people have broken the accepted norms with regard to a matter, they may establish safeguards to strengthen the matter. So the court has the ability to go beyond the, the law, and even though generally in such a case he would not be liable, but if, you know, for whatever reason they see this is being done, people are going around smashing barrels and, and so on, whatever is happening, they, well, in that barrel we said, we said he is liable, but in other cases, even though he might be exempt, but if people are just going fishing and hoping to find the child in the water, you know, so the Bethin might, tell, might give him some sort of uh, punishment, uh, even though the, in regular cases he would be exempt, but for the, the need of the hour, they have the ability to do so. So that concludes our second section. We're moving on to the third section. Hi, Amy. Hi, Jack. Uh, and Hank that are joining. We're on the third section of our, of our source sheet. We discussed the case of what is uh, more important in the case of the, of the smashing of the barrel of liquor. Do we go by the intention, the negative intention, the negative action, or by the, the positive results? And we brought a case of fishing, showed how one rabbi viewed it one way. The other rabbi, which was the accepted opinion, shows that the case of the fish and the, the child is not exactly similar. And therefore, the vandal in the case of liquor will be liable to pay, whereas in the case of the fish, fishing on Chavez, he would be exempt because the act came together. What does this show to us? This shows that in general, between Rabbah and Rava, whose opinion do we accept? We accept the opinion of Rabbah that, that uh, the outcome is what's most important. You know, not, not so much the intention, the intent. You know, they say there's this man that came to the city of Sodom. Sodom, the city which was overturned, the Torah talks about in the book of Genesis. Sodom, Sodom and Gomorrah, they were very uh, terrible people between one, one, one uh, man and his fellow. And, and this man comes, he's walking in the streets of Sodom. And suddenly, 
a resident, he's a guest in town, and a resident, a local guy, comes over and takes a rock and throws it at his face. God, uh, excuse me, blood is dripping down his face. He grabs the attacker and he schleps him to the city's gate. City's gate, the city's gates, where the, where the court was in session. And he comes to the judge and he says, this man just, just attacked me, threw a stone at me. Look at my face, bleeding, blood. The judge says, actually, bloodletting is very healthy. So you have to compensate your attacker because he helped you let, let, let blood. He, let, he helped you uh, with your medical um, health, with your health. He hel- helped you let blood. The guy hears that. The guest hears that. He takes the rock. He whams it. He throws it at the judge's face. And he says, you know, instead of paying me, just pay that guy directly. So a smart man, instead, instead of paying me for helping you, Mr. Judge, but with bloodletting, you don't have to pay me, just pay the attacker. Talk about negative intentions and positive outcomes. <clears throat> this, by the way, you still today, uh, somebody here in Seagate that uh, does the Chinese medicine and does bloodletting, uh, seems that it works miracles. But that's what we're talking here. That's the discussion in the Talmud. What is more important? And we see that the halacha is we follow Rabbah, that in gen- general cases, um, if the act, the negative act with the negative intention comes together with positive results, then we favor the result and we will exempt the transgressor. We go by the result. Even though there was negative intent, man is a bad guy. He had a mind to, to he was trying to destroy. But if the, if the result is positive, then we go by the result. That teaches us something about Torah. Source 13. There is a primacy of results over intention. The intention was to desecrate the Shabbos. He was going fishing. He was planning to go fishing for fish. Real fishing, not for a child. But the result was a life saved. We do not penalize the actor as we would have had, the, had he committed the same act without the accidental result. <laughs> on his part, on the part of the, of the, um, the, one, the one doing the actions here, the transgressor, he was doing fishing. Today, yet, this Shabbos, last Shabbos, last Shabbos he went fishing, he didn't catch a child, we penalized him, he had to bring a sacrifice. This Shabbos happens to be a child showed up. We say, oh, there was a positive result, we go by the positive outcome. And even according to what we discussed here, that the case of the liquor store, of breaking the barrel, uh, in that case he would be obligated, but it's not because of his negative atten- intentions, it's just sort of forcing the limitation, that we're limiting that the positive result needs to be immediate, needs to be simultaneous, together with the act, that limitation recognizes the primacy of results. It merely posits that a later result cannot cancel an earlier result. The fact that a second result ensues becomes an issue becomes an issue of an earlier result versus a later result. Not intentions versus results. We're not saying that he's obligated to pay because of his negative intentions. No, we follow results. We're just saying that the positive result which came later cannot cancel out a previously established negative result. 
And in the case of breaking the barrel, the immediate negative result was, the result was negative. Later on, the guy showed up. The official showed up. He could have not showed up. You know, he could have sold the whole barrel before he showed up. There wasn't an immediate positive result. Like the case of the, of the broken window, that immediately air started to flow in and saved the dog's life. So what does this show to us? It shows to us that deed is more important than creed. Doing the action, the action was done. The child was saved. doesn't matter what his intent was in this case. Not that it doesn't matter. Of course it does matter because as we mentioned, he still needs atonement. But what takes precedent, it's precedent, what takes what's more important, what we should be more obsessed with and give more attention to, more attention, to the deed, not the intent, the intention that went into it. I'll tell you a little story. The Alter Rebbe, Reb Shneir Zalman, the founder of, of Chabad, the Alter Rebbe once came to a city and one of the local people there, a chassid, very wealthy man, and he was very hospitable. He had a soup kitchen of some sort uh, in his house, it was always poor people coming in. The waiters would serve them a warm meal, soup, and everything, and give them uh, some some uh, some money to to, to uh, on on the way out, or they needed to lay down some clothes. He took care of them, and he was known far and wide as a as a charitable person, one who gives lots of tzedakah and and inviting guests over and and t- tending to the poor. But when the Alter Rebbe came and he met with him. He tells the Alter Rebbe, I feel that my intentions are not pure. I feel like I'm doing it for the honor, for the fame, for the respect that I get, for the, uh, everyone's talking about how nice I am and how charitable I am. So maybe I should stop. Maybe I, maybe I don't mean it with an MS. You know the word MS? I don't mean it with an MS. I don't mean it, I'm not doing it truthfully for the right cause, you know, just to purely help them to do what this is what God, what God wants. I'm doing it, it's really, I'm like selfish a little bit. I'm doing it because this brings me honor and it makes me feel good. It makes me famous. Not that I really care for them. The Alter Rebbe heard him out. You don't feel like you're doing it. Your intentions are pure. The Alter Rebbe says, but the poor people are satiated with an MS. They're truthfully truly satiated your intentions may be negative and not coming from a not doing pure but they are purely being fed so although your intentions are negative that does not mean you should stop yes you can work on yourself and try to get to a point that you should do it purely but god forbid to stop because for them the outcome is positive and judaism looks more to outcome than intense Intent is important, but what's more important is the outcome, the deed, more than the creed, what goes into the deed. And that is why, source 15, the halacha is if one dropped, this is the Midrash, tells us, Midrash Sifri, actually connected to our Parsha, we're reading Parsha's Re'e, which talks about tzedakah, giving charity. If one dropped a coin from his hand and a poor man found it, it fell out of his pocket, fell out of your purse, in the store, wherever it is, you dropped a coin. And a poor man found it and fed himself with it. He was hungry, tired. 
And he fed himself with this coin, bought something to eat. It is accounted by scripture as if he had given it to him. He gets the credit, the owner of the money. <laughs> he didn't do anything. He didn't even really, he didn't know about it. He didn't have any intention to give it to him. He dropped it. It happened. And this guy found it. Or she, you know, he or she. Nonetheless, Scripture, Torah, considers it, gives them the credit for the mitzvah of tzedakah. Now, if one did not give, but gave through forgetting, Scripture accounts it to him as if he had intentionally given, then one who intends to give and does give, how great must be his reward. For sure, if you intend to give. But here we see that even if you didn't intend to give, your intentions are not pure. Or even in an extreme case, you don't even know about it. You dropped some money. Whoever finds it and does something good with it, feeds himself, he's poor, you get credit. Your intentions, you didn't have any intentions. And for sure, if, uh, even if your intentions were negative. But we don't go by the intentions, sorry. We go by the outcome. And the outcome was pure. And let's take this also, let's just look at source 16. You know, some people look at religion as uh, it's there for, to make us better people. It's true. It is also there to make us better people. To develop, you know, personal development, make us, make ourselves more, more giving, more loving, more caring. But it, it's, it's not centered around us. Judaism doesn't center around, this is how the Hasidic teachings teaches us based on Kabbalah. It's not just about us, how we should become the best that we can. Yeah, of course, we should work on ourselves. But primarily, in order that by us becoming better people, we will make a greater impact on the world around us. It's not about us. It's about the outcome that we could accomplish by us being better people. People talk about themselves being good people because we do good. Yes, but that's the obsessiveness is not about us being good people. It's about good being accomplished around us. Through us, yes, we need, a, we need to do it. And we need to be a good person to, to do that good. But even if the intentions are not 100% pure, even if the intentions are not purely for God or purely because you really love the guy, and maybe because it makes you feel good or because there, you might get your name up on a building for sponsoring for this, for that, it's still okay. Yes, the person can work on themselves. But what counts most, when Jewish teaching is given more weight, more importance to, is the deed. What's being done. How much of an impact. How many poor people are being fed. How many people are coming to study Torah. It could be studying because he wants to show how smart he is and show everybody how knowledgeable he is. That's okay. At first, you know, if, if the fact is you're doing Torah, you're doing a mitzvah, you're studying Torah, you're doing a good thing. Source number 16. We are placed on this earth primarily to affect a positive change in this world. Therefore, we can be given credit for good deeds that we had no intention of doing. Because the fact is, even if you dro dropped it, but you had an impact. Whether you knew about it or not, whether your intentions were pure or not, you had an impact. For sure, if you intend to do a good deed. Like, just recently, I mentioned it uh, at the Twilling Club. Somebody heard... Here in Seagate, somebody heard that somebody lost a pair of tefillin and it's not easy for him to get together the money to buy a new pair of tefillin to be able to put them on every day. Right away, he said, I want to do the mitzvah. I'm going to, you know, he did it anonymously, not for fame, not for honor. It's beautiful to help him have a pair of tefillin. We got it. We shipped it out to him to have a pair of tefillin with his name on it and so on. 
But even if it's not, for sure if it's done with, with pure intentions, just to help somebody, but even if for whatever reason it's not with, with pure intentions, that should not stop us, that should not refrain us uh, from doing the deed. The deed is what counts. Put the tefillin, light the candles, even if your intentions, you don't feel like you're 100% there, deep down you have an Hashem, you are there, but even if you don't feel like it, the act is what counts. Source 17, one who says, I am contributing to this coin to charity so that my sons will live or so that I will merit a share in the world to come. This person is a full-fledged righteous person. They're still considered righteous. Even if their intentions are very selfish. I'm giving charity, but not because I care for the poor man, but because in the merit of this charity, I want, it, I want my sons to live. Yes, it's very noble to give charity, not for any kind of benefit, just for God, just to help that person, because this is the right thing to do, as the word tzedakah means. Tzedek, it's the correct thing to do, not because you will gain from it. But nonetheless, even if a person gives a tzedakah in order to, in that merit, have some sort of benefit, or merit in, in, in the world to come, his soul should, should, should merit, should, uh, should benefit spiritually from this mitzvah, he's a, he's a righteous person. Because what counts most is the fact that the poor man, or whatever cause you're giving money to, charity to, that cause received the money and was benefited, you made an impact at your, uh, as, as a result of you. Source 18, the Talmud says, a person should occupy himself with Torah and mitzvahs even not for their own sake, for the sake of the Torah, for the sake of the mitzvah. Outcome matters more in a worldview that has as its priority a world to change. The worldview of Judaism is to change this world, to bring goodness, to bring positive positivity to this world by doing one mitzvah, another mitzvah between man and God, between man and his friend, following the laws of the Torah. Outcome matters more because that's what we're here for. It's not just about our intentions. Yes, of course we should work on that as well. But what matters most is what we're here for. We're here to make an impact. So if the impact is being made even with not the most purest intentions, the outcome takes precedence. Source 19, before we wrap it up, <clears throat> it was this, you know, this morning, it was by a bris here in Seagate, for those of you that know uh, David Kreinert, Marina, had a baby boy, and today was the bris, and um, after a bris, the next big, well, you have the upshanish, a three years old, cutting the hair cutting, and then comes the bar mitzvah, the bar mitzvah, a Jewish boy celebrates when he turns 13 years old and begins to put on tefillin. So this family, they weren't uh, especially religious and the rabbi teaches the boy to, how to put on tefillin and they, they buy him a pair of tefillin and it's a few weeks after the bar mitzvah and the father of the bar mitzvah boy calls the rabbi and says, I don't know what to do. My boy is still putting on tefillin every day. You know, we're not religious. Every day he's putting on his tefillin. Yeah, it was nice to have a bar mitzvah, but you know, he's taking it really serious. He's putting on tefillin every day. What do I do? The rabbi says, what's so wrong? I also put on tefillin every day. Not so terrible. I put on tefillin every day. So the father of the boy says, yeah, well, rabbi, you get paid to do it. That's your job. You're the rabbi. You got you to gotta do this stuff. <laughs> My son is really doing it. Right? Talk about intentions. 
So sometimes we can put on tefillin because, you know, that's what we do. What's going to happen? Oh, Yvay, my father is going to scream at me if I don't put on tefillin. The rabbi puts on tefillin not because he gets paid. We should put on tefillin with something that we should work on. We should work on having the proper intentions. But what counts is the action. The action, wrapping with tefillin, connecting to God, the act, the deed. Goodness is brought into the world, spirituality, by doing a mitzvah. When being kind to somebody, even if we're not so pure, we don't really love the guy, we can, we can make as if we do. Yes, we should work on ourselves as well, but we shouldn't stop doing the deed just because we don't feel our intentions aren't so pure yet. Source 19. We should focus less on our motives and more on how we can do more to ensure positive outcomes. Instead of thinking about ourselves, what our motives are and what our intentions are, it is better to think about the impact we have on others and the world around us. It's our accomplishments and the consequences of our actions that matter most. We see this in the law of Shabbos, going fishing, that even though his intention was to fish, which is desecrating the Shabbos, but because a child came up in his net, he is um, exempt from bringing a sacrifice, although he does need atonement, but the, the, they cannot, they, they, he's not obligated to bring a sacrifice because there was a good outcome. And we just clarified, we did some Talmudic analyzing cases that is showing how a case, a, a modern case with the liquor ba- barrel, which was destroyed, may have seemed to be similar to that case because the outcome eventually was positive because the government official showed up a short time later. But then we clarified that that specific case is not exactly the same because the positive result was not simultaneous together with the act. Whereas by fishing, the act of putting your net into the water and bringing, up the, bringing it up along with the fish, that act saved the child. And that is similar to the case of breaking the window that those boys would not have to pay because the outcome of breaking the window, the act of breaking the window together with smashing the glass, air started to flow in, fresh, colder air started to flow in, uh, relieving the dog from, uh, from a heat stroke. So in that case, they have to pay for the laptop because that's got nothing to do with it. But at the moment of breaking the glass, air started to flow. So that just gives you a little bit of insight, what a Bethin, what a rabbinical court goes, goes through to examine cases, analyze and compare it to um, a precedent in Jewish law. And I um, hope that was fascinating. It was interesting uh, preparing the class. As we mentioned, we began uh, today, yesterday was the yard site, the anniversary of the passing of Reb Leivik, known uh, as, uh, as Reb Leivik Schneerson, Reb Leivik Yitzhak Schneerson. Just uh, show you his picture once again here. This is Rabbi Levi Yitzchak Schneerson, the Rebbe's father. And he, this is a picture taken in 1939. Uh, he was the rabbi in Yakatrinoslav, which is now called Dnepro, Dnepropetrovsk in Ukraine. He was a rabbi there for over 30 years until he was arrested for, so, so to say, what they called um, anti-Soviet, anti-communist kind of uh, teaching Torah and being a rabbi and just sticking up for, you know, what we're doing now, just teaching Torah. And as I showed you the picture before, I'll show you another picture of what he looked like after five years of exile. Can't compare, can't compare. Look at look at that that same man five years later. This is Rabbi Levi Yitzchak. Uh, the torture, the exile, he was, he was um, 
you know, tried in an, in a, in Moscow. He wasn't even there. No one was there in Moscow. They decided that he is uh, guilty, and they sentenced him after almost a year in five different prisons all around uh, that area in Ukraine. Eventually, sentenced to Kazakhstan, where he a very primitive city, and uh, we'll hear more about it tonight. So yesterday was his yard site. Tonight at nine o'clock. I'll have a link on my Facebook page. We'll be having a Fabrengen together with my brothers, um, with my six brothers from Toronto, from New Orleans, from Texas, from Postville, Iowa, from uh, Brooklyn, and Seagate, and my youngest brother is not married yet. Uh, he's in camp in Pennsylvania. And he'll be tuning in as well. I think my father's joining. So uh, we'll post a link. At 9 o'clock in the evening, we'll have Fabrengen talking about Reb Levik, the Reb's father, and what we can learn, what we can learn from him to, uh, to us, you know, 76 years after his passing. Concluding our Lunch and Learn number 102. This was a great pleasure to study Torah together. Let me see if any of the comments, I can uh, comment back. If you have anything to say, please comment. Okay. Uh, Gary, you say, It's not good to eat kosher food that looks non-kosher. Mara sign. That is a good point. We discussed this, I think it was number 82. I think it was our first uh, 20 weeks ago when we first started doing Lunch and Learn on Facebook. We had we talked about kosher. I'm not sure if you were on then. <clears throat> we can probably scroll down to uh, shortly after Purim, so uh, I guess March, where we discussed this. And the concept of Marasayan means that we should not be misleading. So, for example, we know we don't eat milk and meat together. So what if I'm having a steak and I have a cup of almond milk? Almond milk is not real milk. Only milk from a cow uh, or a goat, you know, cannot be eaten together. Dairy milk I mean, can't be eaten together with meat. But almond milk or soy milk, which looks very similar, is not a problem. So am I allowed to sit down and have soy milk? So that is misleading as someone that is not as learned might come out and say, oh, wow, the rabbi or this person, I know they keep kosher and they're having milk and meat, so I can do the same. So we are misleading to others. Yes, we are responsible for other people to not uh, guide them or mislead them. So in that case, you might put some almonds near the milk or have the bottle on the table to just make sure they don't make that mistake. We might tell them. Uh, it's possible that nowadays it is so common, man, everybody knows that it's possible that it is almond milk. And almond milk or all these kind of milks are very uh, prevalent, very available. So it's possible that it's not considered to be misleading. And similar to the uh, you know, eating imitation crab, so I, I, I don't like to eat it either, but technically it's 100% kosher. And the problem of being misleading when I remember from that the lesson, I have to look back 20 weeks ago, that it would be okay for sure if you if you have the package there. But I believe it is it is uh, well known nowadays that there is a concept of imitation. Well, this guy in the story didn't know about it. Uh, he he it looked really real. Uh, thank God um, he caught himself before uh, falling, you know, falling uh, acting acting really upon his intention. But, uh, yeah, so there are definitely ways to go around it. Having the package there, that would definitely be okay. So that's for that comment. Um, scrolling back here, any other comments that we had? Uh, what about, Stanley? what about if you're very, very hungry, if you couldn't find food until that day? Um, was that referring to the fish? 
or or, or the or the imitation. I'm not sure, but <clears throat> talk about Rablevik. And one of the reasons why he suffered so much in uh, in, in uh, exile in Alma, he was in Chile. I think I'm pronouncing Chile, Kazakhstan, and later on he moved a little closer to a city where Alma Ata, where he's buried, uh, where there were some other Jewish people there. Um, one of the reasons was because he would not, you know, it was hard to get kosher food. And, and uh, although in certain cases you can have non-kosher food, but, you know, he was being a very holy man, was being extra strict. But uh, nowadays, I don't know if there is such a thing. To be very, very hungry, you know, you're not going to die if you fast a little bit. Um, there, there, there are. I'm not sure exactly what you're referring to, but there nowadays there's Uber Eats and anything. Even on Shabbos, there are ways to to get food um, in a permitted way to have kosher food. So hopefully you won't um, be tested in that way. But if you uh, have this problem, please you can walk over and we're close by. We'll be more than glad to help you out. Uh, okay, so I think that's it for today. Once again, tonight, 9 o'clock p.m., you can tune in to my Facebook page. And Thursday, we'll have the weekly episode, episode 15. Wow, 15 weeks already. Episode 15 at 7.30 p.m. Um, all right. Zagazunt, everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your day. Stay cool, it's quite hot outside, and God forbid, never leave a child, for sure a dog, a pet, but for sure a child, never leave them uh, in a car. It just can get really, really hot in the car. So be vigilant and be safe. And this is just a sample of Torah, the depth of Torah. Torah is very deep. Torah is uh, very um, detailed, complex. And when we study the Torah, we are uniting with God's wisdom.